This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. Today, an automated device for people with type 1 diabetes. How lockdowns affected teens and their time on screens. When we might see updated COVID vaccines for new variants. And... Since the start of the pandemic, Australia has recorded well over 8 million cases of COVID-19. And when you consider that about 10% of people with COVID go on to report prolonged symptoms, it maybe shouldn't be a surprise that the ABC is receiving many, many stories from people who say they have long COVID and aren't able to access the help they need for it. Definitions of long COVID vary, but the World Health Organization defines it as a symptoms that persist for more than three months after you first got sick. We've all heard, or maybe you've experienced, tales of debilitating brain fog, breathlessness and fatigue. Gail Matthews has been looking into long COVID since way back in April of 2020. She's giving us the latest on what we understand about long COVID and what might be driving it. So I think there are several different theories about what might be driving long COVID. And as I said, it really depends. Long COVID is probably an umbrella diagnosis, if you like, which includes several different underlying pathologies within it. But some of the theories, for example, that might be driving long COVID is that there might be some fragments of virus somewhere, maybe in the gut, for example, that are setting up an ongoing inflammatory response in the blood. And we certainly have done in our study, which was the ADAPT study, which was done at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, but in collaboration with colleagues at Kirby Institute, where I also practice, we looked at people's blood eight months after initial infection. These were people infected during the first wave of COVID-19 and found that their blood, the people who still had persistent symptoms at that time, looked very different from those who didn't. So it looked like there was an activated immunological response to something. Now, whether that's the virus hiding somewhere, there is different theories behind that. So that's one suggestion of what's happening. Researchers from St Vincent's Hospital, so our neurology colleagues, again, from the ADAPT study, have looked at the brain biomarkers in blood of people who were in that ADAPT study and found that there is elevation in something called the KP, which is a biomarker of possible neuroinflammation. And that's about 20% of people in our study had some evidence of cognitive dysfunction. So it's a bit like trying to put together pieces of a jigsaw, but very tiny pieces to really understand what's causing this. What does Australia need to be doing in terms of researching, but also treating people with these prolonged symptoms? Because this is quite a new phenomenon, obviously it's taken some period of time for the medical and scientific community and the research community to catch up to the needs of the population. And I think now we are seeing a lot of focus on long COVID and the needs of patients. So I think we're starting to see clinics, long COVID clinics, multidisciplinary clinics. We certainly have one at St Vincent's Hospital, but I know there are others being set up now rapidly in most major cities and states, but it's taking some time to get these clinics set up. And I think that's where the frustration from the patients is being seen. What I do think we need to do is a lot of upskilling of primary care practitioners where many of these patients will first present to in terms of the kind of things that they can do and the kind of pathways that may be there to help their patients. And each patient with long COVID may have a, a different set of symptoms or may need a different pathway for help. So there's a lot of upskilling, education, discussion that's needed and a lot more research into exactly how many people are suffering long COVID and why they have those symptoms. So GPs and other first line health professionals need to be better at understanding it and knowing how to respond. But what happens in these long COVID clinics? What does the St Vincent's Clinic look like? 
The first step of most of these clinics when a patient comes is to really do a very thorough assessment exactly of what that particular patient is suffering in terms of symptoms. Because I said, there's many different reasons why people might have persistent symptoms after having acute COVID-19 infection. So it's really important to understand exactly what for that particular patient, what their predominant symptoms are. And then there's a major focus really on, on making sure there is no coexisting medical conditions that might have either been triggered by COVID-19 or maybe even were there before COVID-19 but were not recognised. So a real thorough medical assessment to rule out any treatable pathology. So I'm talking about things like little blood clots in the lungs, for example. And then if there can be no pathology found, so nothing that's eminently treatable, then it's very much around rehabilitation for that patient, depending on their symptoms. So engagement with a, a physiotherapist who's trained in various techniques, also maybe linking into a psychologist if they have particular symptoms related to their diagnosis around anxiety, depression, sleep disturbance. So sleep studies may also be an important component. So it's really very multidisciplinary. Are there ways that people can screen themselves or are there things that medical professionals should be doing to screen people for their risk ahead of time? There's no clear person who is likely to get long COVID in that sense. So you can get it even if you've had a very mild illness as well as a more severe illness. It does seem that women uh, are somewhat more at risk of getting long COVID and we don't know the reason why that might be something to do with their immune systems that are different from men. But that's not to say that men also can't get long COVID. So it's very difficult to predict ahead of time who might get long COVID. In terms of symptoms, as I said earlier, I think there are a lot of people out there who are having delayed recovery from acute infection. So I would say in those early weeks after COVID-19, you know, rest, take it easy, don't expect yourself to be back to full work and exercise straight away. This is an infection that often does take a period of time to recover from. And many of those people have a will be back to their normal work and full health within a few weeks having had COVID-19. A smaller proportion of those people, however, will not be recovered. And those are the people that we really need to focus on in terms of their long COVID and how they can be helped. So with this definition of long COVID as being a sort of a 12-week, more than 12 weeks, that's actually a relatively short period of time in the course of a lifetime. What sort of mm. research is being done into any really long-term effects of a COVID-19 infection? Of course, because the whole pandemic has only been with us um, just over a couple of years, it's very hard for us to know what the long-term effects of COVID-19 might be on sort of more longer-term health outcomes in the population. And that's why it's critically important to set up the infrastructure, both from a research perspective and from a community perspective now, to try and, and make sure we link health outcomes to people who've had COVID with rather longer-term health outcomes, for example, heart disease, lung disease, brain disease, etc. So that we set up those systems now so that we can track what COVID-19 might do long-term in a population. But we really don't know um, at the moment. We're only two years in. Certainly our study, which is a small study, but we've been following people up very intensely for the last couple of years. And, and we're just looking at those people now and how their health is at two years down the track. And we'll be reporting on that soon. So it's really a time when we need to put in a, a lot of energy as a community, government health resources to understand what the long term impacts may be. Thank you, Gail, so much. OK, no problem. Professor Gail Matthews is head of the Therapeutic Vaccine and Research Program at the Kirby Institute at UNSW and head of infectious diseases at St Vincent's Hospital. Pfizer and Moderna have both recently announced results from updated versions of their coronavirus vaccines targeting the Omicron variant. 
Just like with the initial race to produce a vaccine against COVID, it's an impressive turnaround time. And yet, even while these have been developed, the virus has continued to mutate. So how do you make the call as to which variant you target the next vaccine against? And what constitutes success? To answer these questions, here's the chief investigator in eight different COVID vaccine trials, Paul Griffin. We've been working on those all the way back to alpha, but when we compared them to the original vaccines, there didn't seem to be much benefit. And that held true all the way up to, I guess, the early days of Omicron where we had BA1 and maybe even starting with BA2. But what we've seen, of course, is that we've had further subvariants, and each of those have successively been a, a little bit more different. So when we now look at Omicron-specific boosters, they do appear to be giving us an advantage. And so they are being developed quite quickly. And I would expect we might have one of those available even before the end of this year. When we're looking at vaccine efficacy in a study, one of the sort of proxies that they look at is antibodies, neutralising antibodies. How reliably does that translate into real world effectiveness? Yeah, those laboratory studies are really useful because we can do those quite quickly and we can compare them to the previous vaccines and compare different variants in the laboratory. And, you know, really that's probably enough information to proceed at least to some kind of clinical trial. We can't be sure about the benefits of these vaccines until we do see clinical data. But we're certainly not going to have to replicate all of the phases of clinical trials. So as you say, a lot of the groundwork's been laid when it comes to updating COVID vaccines because we've managed to get some out and they work. How difficult is it with COVID, which is still very new and does seem to be transforming quite quickly, to know which strain is going to be the most effective by the time people are actually receiving it? One of the things we can do to address that is to try and get vaccine coverage up across the world because the fewer susceptible people in which the virus has to replicate, the slower the emergence of these new variants is likely to be. So, you know, that's still something we need to do in the background. I think in terms of predicting, it's, it's going to be nearly impossible. But what we need to do, I think, is respond as quickly as we can. And the fortunate thing about all these vaccines we're using is they're often described essentially as plug and play technology. So to make a simple change to what the vaccine is targeting is actually quite easy and can be done quite quickly. We heard figures quoted of eight to 10 weeks originally, but if we have to start doing this more and more, I suspect it'll actually get quicker and quicker. When you say eight to 10 weeks, what process are you talking about there? So I guess that's taking uh, the emergence of a new variant or subvariant. We can use the genetic material, the, the RNA sequence of that virus, and very quickly plug it into our vaccine platforms, make a new variant or subvariant-specific vaccine, do that laboratory testing and some really brief clinical trials, and then start to scale up that manufacturing. And as I say, that can probably happen in eight to 10 weeks. I mean, that's an astonishing feat. When we were first talking about trying to develop a COVID vaccine, there was a lot of sort of expectation management from people in the know saying, look, it takes a long time to develop a vaccine. Respiratory viruses are notoriously hard to protect against. And then we had vaccines coming out that had really high efficacy that perhaps skewed our expectations in the other direction where we thought it was going to be like almost a silver bullet. How do we manage expectations with the public when it comes to COVID vaccines? You know, we did do a remarkable job of getting out vaccines in such a short space of time without compromising on any of the steps to be confident they're safe and effective. And those vaccines were a lot more efficacious than anybody really predicted. And so I think uh, expectation management and I guess explaining also the rationale for why we do need to update these vaccines, because it doesn't reflect that we were wrong with the vaccines that we've been using or that they weren't as good as we first thought. It really is a manifestation of the virus evolving very quickly. And so, you know, it's uh, becoming increasingly challenging to actually 
actually combat that virus and our response also needs to adapt accordingly. So, you know, a lot of people have seen uh, changes in our strategy, whether it be shortening the interval for boosters or looking at a variant specific vaccine as evidence that what we did before that was not correct. But in fact, that's not the case. And I think we really do need to provide ongoing education to that effect and also prepare people for the fact that these current vaccines and our current schedule is working tremendously well. But it's not going to protect us forever. So there will need to be further vaccines moving forward. If you have one message for the average Australian when it comes to interpreting, yeah, like you say, these sometimes changing pieces of advice around COVID vaccination, what do you say to them? First of all, look to reputable sources of information. There's still so much misinformation out there that it's a bit of a minefield and people can very easily be misled by misinformation that's out there. And then I think we also need to make sure that we do a good job of communicating some explanation as to why things have changed. And as I say, the rapidly adapting strategy has really been in response to a rapidly adapting virus and that we can't predict the future though. So our response will also have to be able to adapt moving forward. When should people expect to be able to get a variant-specific booster and will it be sort of in the existing technology of the vaccines that are already approved in Australia? We are mostly using existing technology, so it's the front runners, the vaccine companies that we're already utilising, Moderna, Pfizer and Novavax, for example, are probably the front runners with some of those variant-specific boosters as well. It looks like maybe the second half of this year. Again, impossible to predict a firm date because we want to make sure we have all the data to approve those vaccines and we know that our regulator is incredibly rigorous. They won't take any shortcuts with that. So for many people, there'll probably be perceived delays as they do really carefully analyse data to make sure it's the right decision to approve that, particularly that it is better than the existing vaccines. The other big change we're likely to see is that they're likely to be what we call bivalent vaccines. So it might not be that we just change to a variant-specific one, but we might actually have a booster that has the original and the variant-specific vaccine in it. And it's studies of that combination that are seeming to give the most potent response. And so I actually expect that there'll be one of those multivalent or bivalent vaccines that uh, will be approved probably before the end of the year. How often do you expect we'll be getting COVID boosters as a matter of course in the future? Well, that's a really good question and one that I don't think anybody can answer. I mean, what's really clear is our current vaccines, they do work really well, particularly against severe disease. Certainly some protection from infection, but the emergence of these new subvariants has, has changed that to a slight degree. But even though our vaccines are working well, we know they're not going to provide lifelong protection. There will definitely be future doses required. But when and how and what they're comprised of will be largely dictated by what the virus does. So I think on balance, we might try and defer to maybe an annual vaccine, but um, it's really hard to predict that at the moment. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Associate Professor Paul Griffin is an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist at the University of Queensland and the MARTA and the director of the Immunisation Coalition. You're listening to RN's Health Report. I'm Tegan Taylor. People with type 1 diabetes spend a lot of time monitoring chemicals in their bodies. They can't make insulin, which the body needs to balance out glucose in the blood. An imbalance can be life-threatening, as well as causing damage to their blood vessels, nerves and kidneys. Systems that automate insulin monitoring and delivery aim to take some of the pressure off these people and their bodies. David O'Neill is leading research into new generation systems and studying them in people with advanced kidney disease, a group in which it's notoriously difficult to manage diabetes. Here's David. Uh, Thank you, Tegan. It's something that we take for granted with those of us who have healthy functioning pancreases is that glucose control 
is automatically dealt with. We don't have to think about it. The pancreas senses any changes in glucose levels in the bloodstream and on a continuous basis adjusts insulin delivery accordingly. In people with type 1 diabetes, none of that is working and therefore they have to administer insulin under the skin and adjust the dose. So they've got to think about all of these things. They've got to monitor their glucose levels and adjust insulin dosing accordingly. And that really takes up a lot of their time. And there is a burden, both emotional and physical, with regard to that. You talk about the emotional burden and the mental burden that's relatively self-explanatory if you had to be kind of calculating this all the time and injecting that into yourself all the time. But can you talk a bit about the physical burden of what's happening inside the body and what happens if you don't get it quite right? If you don't get it quite right, the sugars can either go too low and you have a hypo and this can affect your ability to think properly because the glucose go too low and the brain is dependent upon glucose level fuel. And if it gets low enough, you can lose consciousness. If it goes too high and it's chronically high, these high glucose levels can damage the body because they're outside a healthy range and they can damage the blood vessels, they can damage the nerves and they can damage the kidneys. Right. So can you talk about the system, who's using it at the moment and what your involvement has been in in the research. What we call it is a hybrid closed loop system. And what these systems are, there's a little wire sitting under the skin that measures glucose levels every five minutes. And this transmits this information to an insulin pump, which has a reservoir with rapid acting insulin. And this insulin pump calculates the amount of insulin required by the person based on the glucose levels measured. And it will deliver it via a cannula that sits under the skin. We call this a hybrid closed-loop system predominantly because insulin delivered under the skin takes a little while to act and it doesn't deal with things such as meals and exercise as well as the healthy pancreas does. The person using these devices does need to at the very least announce meals or calculate the amount of carbohydrate they're going to eat, enter it into the device which has a computer in it which will determine the dose. But they are excellent at night. They keep the person relatively safe at night because it's continuously adjusting insulin delivery overnight when the person is asleep. So what we've got here is something that's not completely automated, but especially in the periods where you can't be awake calculating what you need, it's doing that job for you. That's correct. And that's where the biggest difference is when the person is asleep. If you can imagine, if you give yourself a dose of insulin with an injection under the skin and you know that the amount of insulin you require overnight can vary by 200%. And so you give an average dose at bedtime. I mean, it will be right for most of the time, but sometimes it may be too little and your sugars will go high overnight and sometimes it may be too much and that's where people get concerned and the sugars go too low and they can have a hypo at night when they're most vulnerable. The thing with diabetes is that the damage is cumulative. So can you quantify what the difference that a device like this might make over a lifespan? The short answer is we're still working on that but from a theoretical perspective, we think it will be significant. Bear in mind, these devices are changing all the time. So they're first-generation closed-loop systems, and then they're second-generation, and they're getting better all the time. And what we expect is that in the future, we won't have hybrid closed-loop systems, but they will be entirely closed-loop, where the person using the device doesn't have to interact with it for meals or exercise. So what's the status of these devices at the moment. Can anyone get fitted with one or are they still in the experimental stage? No, that is probably the most important thing, access. With both parties, with the last 
election have promised that people with type 1 diabetes will have access across the board to continuous glucose sensors, which is one component of these devices. An average insulin with closed-loop functionality costs about $8,500. A pump on its own will not give you a closed-loop function. You need a glucose sensor that's compatible with the pump to do that. We hope that in the future going forward, that access to these devices will be based on need rather than financial means. And those who are most in need will, in fact, have access to the best possible care. What's the latest research that you've put out about this? There's a connection with kidney disease. Our study is essentially looking at the role of these devices in people with advanced kidney disease. People with kidney disease have some of the poorest quality of life and are some of the most frail people with diabetes. Not only does poor glucose levels impact the development of kidney disease, as we've mentioned before, but the presence of advanced kidney disease makes control of blood glucose levels more complicated, mainly because insulin action is less effective. We call it insulin resistance in the setting of kidney disease. Also, treatment for advanced kidney disease, dialysis, will impact insulin requirements as well. And they're all pulling in different directions. And so things are difficult enough as they are in someone with normally functioning kidneys with type 1 diabetes. But if you can imagine, if you add onto this the presence of advanced kidney disease, where the person's frail, cognitively, they may be compromised, and the whole insulin dosing calculation becomes more complex, it really becomes incredibly challenging for these people who have some of the poorest quality of life. And we hope a closed-loop system will ease some of that burden. David, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Tegan. Professor David O'Neill is Senior Endocrinologist at St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. And back to COVID, kind of, one of our main tools to prevent virus transmission before the end of last year was social distancing, including lockdowns. But of course, tough interventions like that have their own health effects. A study by the Matilda Centre has looked specifically at how lockdowns and the like affected health behaviours of teens, especially around screen time and physical activity. We know these are key predictors of things like cardiovascular disease, cancer and mental disorders later in life. The lead author of the study was Lauren Gardner, and she's been speaking with Health Report producer Diane Dean. So we collected our baseline data in 2019, so just before the pandemic began, which gave us quite a unique opportunity to assess how those key health behaviours changed during the pandemic among quite a large and geographically diverse sample. So we had about 1,000 participants across New South Wales, WA and Queensland. And although a lot of the research to date had focused in on those initial phases of the pandemic and usually with the full sample in lockdown, Our follow-up data is from the second half of 2021, which was when around one-third of the sample were under the Greater Sydney lockdown. So we were able to look at how different levels of restrictions impacted those health behaviours, and we also explored if there were any differences based on gender as well. I was hesitating to call it an opportunity. Yeah, it was an interesting one, I suppose, because it was an opportunity for a study like this, but of course for us trying to roll out a big school-based intervention and get follow-up services 
surveys completed, it was definitely challenging, but I think it's fine to call it an opportunity. And that study was looking at the, what's called the big six of health behaviours, diet, physical activity, recreational screen time, sleep, and then alcohol and tobacco use. And then there was another layer to do with gender and then the lockdown status. There was excessive recreational screen time use. It seemed to me to not go up by that much. Is that a misconception on my part? No, I think you're right. It didn't necessarily increase by too much. So it was 86% of the sample at the first time point who were exceeding the guidelines for screen time. And that went up to 94%. So it's not a huge increase, but it is quite a staggering statistic regardless to know that almost all young people are exceeding those guidelines for screen time. It's gone up regardless of lockdown status, as have some of these behaviours. So I think it's perhaps showing that these habits have become quite entrenched and that there really is a need for us to get in and intervene now so we can improve those health trajectories because we know that these are key indicators of disease later in life. The lockdown, we actually saw some improvements in health behaviours. So the young people who were in lockdown reported reduced sugar-sweetened beverage consumption and reduced discretionary or junk food intake. But I think across the board, what our findings show is that regardless of lockdown status, most Australian teens are spending too much time on screens. They're not getting enough physical activity and they're not eating healthily, particularly among teenage girls as well. We saw that there were increases in poor sleep and sharper increases in alcohol use than boys. And this is, of course, quite concerning because these behaviours are key predictors of chronic diseases later in life, like cardiovascular disease, cancers and mental disorders. What our findings suggest is that adolescent girls have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And I think it's quite interesting when you couple our findings around the increased sleep problems and alcohol use with those from the broader literature around mental health. Both sleep problems and alcohol use commonly co-occur with mental health problems like depression and anxiety. And both nationally and internationally, we've seen the mental health of teenage girls worsen during the pandemic as well. So for example, in Australia in particular, we saw increases in self-harm and increases in eating disorders among young females. Although the links are quite complex and more research is certainly needed to understand the changing trends, I think the findings really show that there is a need for effective behaviour change interventions and perhaps some tailored support to improve the health and well-being of teenage girls in particular. What do you anticipate happening? If things getting worse, will there be follow-up studies? And then are there any low key ways I'm saying for young people to be made aware of this and to actually do something for themselves. I think what this is showing is that there have been impacts on those health behaviours. While we are starting to feel like life is returning to normal and we're coming out of those acute phases of the pandemic, we really can't forget about those ongoing impacts. So we know that the physical and mental health impacts of significant events like the pandemic do tend to persist over the longer term. And we also know that health behaviours that are established during adolescence are likely to track into adulthood and lead to those chronic diseases. So there really is an urgent need now for investment from government in prevention and health promotion to allow us to intervene and improve those health trajectories. But schools, parents and GPs can also play a role. And as you said, young people themselves are starting to set some small goals. Perhaps it's getting an extra little bit of physical activity each day, 
you're getting physical activity, then you're more likely to get a better sleep. You're getting a better sleep, then you're probably not spending as much time on screens before bed. They're all very interrelated and can have flow-on effects on each other. Parents themselves can play an important role modelling that healthy behaviour, so putting away their phones, getting some exercise themselves, trying to engage in that physical activity with their child. They can do things like setting rules, but also they need to make sure that they are fair and age-appropriate, so things like no device use the hour before bed could be useful to ensure good sleep hygiene and just providing that support. It also needs to come from higher as well, so investment from government in that prevention and health promotion will also be beneficial. Dr Lauren Gardner is a research fellow at the University of Sydney's Matilda Centre for Research Excellence in Mental Health and Substance Abuse. Speaking there to Diane Dean. I'm Tegan Taylor and this has been The Health Report for another week. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.